Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Catherine Ingram. The following session of Dharma Dialogues was recorded on Maui in 2010. It's called Your Song of Nobility. I'd like to also let you know that we're having Dharma Dialogues two Sundays a month on the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria, beginning in February 2023, the schedule of which is on the website, katherineingram.com. There's a tribe in Africa which has the practice, many of you have probably heard this uh, story, it's a true story, has the practice of when a woman is pregnant, she and some of the members of the tribe, usually other women, go somewhere apart and they, they chant and they wait for the song of the child the name of the child and the song of the child. And the name and the song have a nobility of spirit, a particular one for this particular child. The chant is done only a few times in the life of this person. At birth, at um, rite of passage around 13, and at death. But there's one other exceptional time that the chant is used, and that is when this person has committed an egregious act, has done something quite terrible, not just a small infraction, but something quite bad. And when that happens, they take that person and they put him in the circle in the center of the circle, and the whole tribe chants his song and his name to remind him or her who he is, to remind him of his nobility of spirit. One can imagine that would be a very powerful experience, having your tribe chanting your song in a moment like that. Very different from being punished, obviously. Now, most of us did not grow up in such an African tribe. And we have to find our own song ourselves. And there is a great possibility of having that be the case. And perhaps our songs don't even have words or melody. Maybe they do, but not necessarily. We tend by conditioning and by stress and by all kinds of ways, we tend to identify with the least noble aspects of ourselves sometimes, the neurotic story that just runs and runs and runs and has different components. Some people like to identify with their means of success, Some people like to identify by how they look or how accomplished their children are or the places they've been, how much money they have. People have all kinds of misidentifications when they're forgetting their song, maybe their silent song. Misidentifications. 
And strangely, often people are heavily identified and presenting a certain somebody to the world in the hope of being loved. That's actually what they want. Jack Cornfield and I were on this webcast last Sunday. He told a beautiful story, or he told, made a fantastic example, rather, of this Nobel Prize winner, I think his name, last name is Wald, who realized after winning the Nobel Prize that actually what he wanted was love, and the Nobel Prize was kind of a consolation prize. <laughs> it's a nice consolation prize as they go. But <laughs> so often we're identifying and presenting and building up and offering to the world, saying, look at me, look at me, honor me for this or that, because we want underneath to be loved. And we go around the bend to try to get there. And meanwhile, it's also a great misidentification of your true self. You're forgetting who you are in your fundamental essence. What is an easy, obvious way to find your proper identification Who are you really in the essence, in the simplicity, in the sweetness of love? Do you really need to work that hard at it? Or is it possible to just relax? My teacher used to always say that when you see this you'll laugh. When you see it clearly, you'll laugh because you'll realize how simple it was all along. You laugh at yourself. You think, wow, I was making something incredibly complicated that was actually very simple. So this wanting to be loved. Yes. What's that about? You know, it's programmed. People want to be loved. Don't you? Well, it's a question I'm asking myself right now. But it's something that I hear very often. Whether it's part of our awakened spirit or not, I don't know. Well, forgetting awakened spirit, is it part of your human experience? I would assume so, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, from my vantage point, that's that's a wonderful thing. Uh, You know, there are, just like you told the story about that Nobel Prize winner, though, Mm -hmm. people will go to great lengths to achieve that feeling of being loved, or they'll feel their lives are incomplete without somehow getting that affirmation. Yes. Um, And I don't know if that affirmation ever comes from the outside. Well, you're right. I mean, it's certainly best to sit in your own well-being, your own sense of aliveness, your own appreciation, your own generating of love. That's best, of course. But it's very natural and very human to love the feeling of being loved. If you're you're strong enough in your own sense of who and what you are, it won't be an absolute necessity for your well-being that other people love you. It won't collapse you. It may not even diminish your spark very much, but it's very, very nice. It's nice to have. I mean, Punjaji once said... If no one comes to satsang, I'll have satsang with the breeze. I'll have satsang with the birds, right? But even that is, you know, he's still wanting some company there. (laughs) 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 So, you know, to understand that as a human being, it just feels very, very nice that 
You could call it a holy kind of yearning. And it may not be the case that, you know, I, I could easily imagine situations or circumstances where someone is sitting very still in the center of their being, but not somehow attracting uh, love. I often reflect on, through time and, and even in other cultures here and now as we sit here, there are people who are very like ourselves in terms of dialed into a certain simple frequency, but they're stuck in a culture where nobody else is getting that. And I, I mean, I grew up in a culture like that in the South, actually. <laughs> and I was a misfit. Had I stayed there, I could imagine that I wouldn't necessarily have felt real appreciated and that there would have been a certain yearning that was very unfulfilled. I was so lucky to be able to, I mean, I went off on this quest, on this search of my own, really not knowing if I would find any other like-minded characters out there. I've been incredibly lucky to find legions of them worldwide because I've been able to travel and find and be on this and live in a culture that's, has this kind of freedom. But a lot of people, I've, I've actually gotten a couple of emails, one from a woman in uh, one of the Kazakhstan or somewhere like that, one of the stands. She had found a, a free thing I had on iTunes, and she wrote me this very deep and touching letter about her situation, which felt incredibly and profoundly lonely to her, and that she was just so delighted to know that there were other people in the world like her. But there she is in a culture. She didn't tell me much about her personal circumstances, but I could sense. So when you're not feeling, when you're sitting in the center of that love and that beauty, but you're not really feeling seen as that, that can feel quite lonely. There can be a heart, a heartbreak in that. One of my friends in Los Angeles, whenever I would say to him, nice to see you, he would always say, nice to be seen. <laughs> and, and it's really like that. It's very nice to be seen for that deep essence that you are, that you don't have to present some, you don't have to present any, anything that somebody who's on that frequency is looking at you and saying, ah, oh, same, same. You know, I can meet this person in the place where there's not two. I can meet this person on a frequency that is very subtle. And it's delightful to meet that way. It's, it's delicious. And then you can talk story. And it's not as, you know, annoying but when you're with someone who's presenting only story, you know, have you ever been like cornered at a party and someone just starts rapping at you and you can sense they're trying to impress you and they're just telling you this litany of either experiences or accomplishments or stuff or and you feel kind of badgered. And it also, as I said a few weeks ago, it also starts stirring the movement of ego in you, which starts feeling yucky as well. And you're not meeting in that heaven realm. You're not meeting there. You're meeting on the, on the level of, of ego presentation, which is incredibly unsatisfying. And yet, one can have so much compassion when you see it, if you can kind of step away from it. Because you can then, especially if you could view it as a film, you would so clearly see, oh, this person's trying to meet in some place that gives them a sense of connection, and they just don't know how to go about it. They haven't accessed it in themselves. And when you're with someone who does sit in that spot in themselves, 
you know, it's just signaling to everyone else you can relax. <laughs> it's signaling to everyone else you're okay just as you are, just relax. I might have told this story in the last few weeks, but I once saw Richard Gere interviewed on Oprah. And he was talking about his close, lovely relationship with his parents. And so Oprah jumped in and said, who would you, you know, are those the people you're most relaxed with in the world? Who are you most comfortable with in the world? And he, without hesitation, said, the Dalai Lama. And she said, why? And he said, because I know that he doesn't want anything from me except my happiness. He doesn't want anything. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need me to be any way at all. Doesn't need me to be a movie star. Doesn't need me to be handsome. Doesn't, he didn't say this part. I'm adding it. Doesn't need me to be influential for them. Doesn't need anything. And, you know, when you're with someone who sits in their own center like that, in their own generation of love, then, you know, it starts to work as a tuning fork and it starts to send the frequency out and pull that frequency in. And we love, we love that. We love it. You know, it's a great question you asked because it's, because it, 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 it encompasses both the human level and the, what you could maybe call the absolute level. But one of the things I really loved about how Punjaji expressed himself in these ways is that he was really willing to honor that human level of the heart. And one of the great treasures of my life is a letter from him in which he began it, My dear daughter Catherine, do you know how much I miss you? And as I've said before, he just was missing me while he was writing that letter. He, was, he didn't live in a state of missing me, for sure. <laughs> but that in the moment of writing the letter, you know, probably my, the memory of me was there in his awareness. And he missed, he longed for, he yearned for. And that gives all of us permission when we hear it, that someone who's that kind of has that kind of clarity in their life and lives in that condition of love and quietude as a general space also has room for the human, the human needs, the human emotions, the human connections, and I would even add attachments. So that brings up, like, in The Course in Miracles, you know, special relationships and people usually quit in that area, the course. And so it's always... They quit the course? Yeah, often if they're going to drop out of using that material, often it'll be in the special relationships area. So it's, it's been a question of mine, just why pick somebody in specifically? You know, it's, it's, your, your stuff's just going to be coming up no matter who you're interfacing with, other than it's, you know, fun and interesting or whatever you make it. But anyway, just wondered if you had any comments about what would be called special relationships. Like, I feel like I have that with my daughter and it's, you know, it's been, it's both a, a lifelong commitment and delightful and it also has that attachment and grasping nature and all those kinds of pieces also. But that's so natural. It just, it's built in. It's biologically built in. I've really uh, reflected on this a lot because having the family that I was born into, who I'm very connected and attached to, right? And yet there, we don't really have a lot in common except blood, <laughs> but that turns out to be a rather powerful element to have in common and a shared time. And I'm thinking about this in terms of a mate, and oh. I haven't had a mate for many, many years. Uh-huh. And so 
<laughs> it, it both feels like a longing and there's a little bit of a desire nature there to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also like, well, I'm pretty neutral also. I mean, most of the time. That's so. good. That's very good. So then if a mate comes along, yeah, you'll say, welcome. Okay. And if one doesn't, you say, also. Also. Okay, you thank know? you. And that is really my very strong recommendation to all of you who are in the room who don't have a mate. Please don't set it up in your consciousness that something is so missing that you can't really enjoy your life. I think that there is so much pressure on people in our, in our society. Maybe it's worldwide, I don't know, but I, I know our culture. There's a, there's a story that runs through that if you're not with someone, if you're not partnered up, then you must be miserable, poor you, like a spinster. And what gives the lie to this is the divorce rate, <laughs> you know, which is 50% or so. And you've got to figure another 50% are not that happy. So you, now we're looking at about 75%. And frankly, I would rather be not in a relationship than in an uncomfortable relationship or a bad relationship or a relationship that is even just a kind of, as I said in my book, a kind of low-level detente whereby you just sort of are agreeing to exist in the dangling conversation, as Paul Simon famously called it, you know, just in the superficial size. And sometimes you see these couples at a restaurant both of them staring into space and yeah. picking at their food. and <laughs> huh? Is it unavoidable? Well, isn't it? I don't know. I'm, I'm not in a relationship. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> now this is not to say, by the way, I think having a great relationship looks like a lot of fun. You know, a fabulous. And, and obviously, a great relationship doesn't mean that you're always getting along every minute. It doesn't mean that you don't make compromises, that you don't give and take. Of course, all of those things are the case. But I'm talking about a great relationship. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday. His wife died a year and a half ago. They were married a bit over 12 years. And they had a blast until the end when she was so sick. And he was saying to me, he'd had a previous marriage many years ago that was difficult. And he was saying to me how he wanted to be in another, he wanted to have another marriage that was like the last one, you know, that was a great marriage. And he said, because, you know, I've been in a tough marriage and I've been alone and I've been in a great marriage. And being in a great marriage is by far the best one to have. And he said, but then if, you're, if, if it's just the other two choices, I'd rather be alone. <laughs> so that's always been my recommendation to people. I always say choose peace. Choose peace over your fear of aloneness. And celebrate your life every day with your friends, with your family, or with the breeze and the birds. Celebrate your life. I told this story because our last week's webcast, the one we just did with with Jack Cornfield, was on love and eros. I told the story about how when I was younger and very much kind of in a melancholy if I wasn't in a relationship. Of course, I was often in melancholy in relationship, but (laughs) when I was not in relationship, I always had it set up that there was nothing I could really enjoy without dreaming of the ghostly lover that was missing. I couldn't see a sunset. All it would do is remind me that I'm alone. I wish I was sharing this with my lover. I couldn't do anything. I came here to Hawaii once, and it was, you know, it was a torture because (laughs) it was so beautiful and the plumeria-scented breezes and, you know, and I was just in this dreamy, wistful Something's missing. Poor me. When is it going to ever happen for me? On and on. Uh, Somehow or other, through some miraculous grace over these years, and an entrainment in deep appreciation, and a complete unwillingness to compromise my peace of mind, now I forgot that story. 
I forget to ever have that story be interesting. It just doesn't arise. I'm so used to generating that delight just for its own sake. Right? Without any need to share it or tell anyone about it or any of it. And that's really my strong recommendation. Yeah. Just to back up one second, when you were talking about Richard Gere and Oprah asked him, who would he feel most comfortable with? And he said the Dalai Lama. My feeling would be, and it's the most difficult thing in the world, is to be comfortable with yourself. So if you're comfortable with yourself, it doesn't matter who you need to be comfortable with. Yeah. So why is it so difficult? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it can actually get very easy. Often it's difficult because there is a... um, either a story that's running that you're quite used to, it's an old, familiar story, and we all have our own special versions, you know, and some of the stories have anxiety that's an undercurrent, some of them have out-and-out fear that's an undercurrent, some have regret, some have, like we were talking, this sense of something missing, so you're always reaching for something that you feel is not there, and a kind of disappointment that one lives with. And all of these stories, they have, of course, a tale with them. It's not just just the arising of regret. It has a story with it. But all of these stories kind of roll along and can very much give one a very uneasy sense in one's skin, right? If you don't start interrupting it. If you just let the conditioning roll on, then for most people, most of us are not so lucky as to have a very pleasant story running. Some people have that, very few. Some people had such a great, they had some, you know, they won the genetic lottery, first of all, they had a relatively, yeah, they had great parents, you know, who loved, loved, loved them. Our stories condition our relationship to our world, obviously. And it is very important if you happen to have a a kind of either depressing or distrustful or sad or whatever the story happens to be, you don't have to manipulate the story, which is the good news. You keep interrupting it with your present awareness. And you interrupt it enough that pretty soon that story becomes rather background, like whispers. Instead of turn up the volume, it's a turned down volume, very background. And so that you start to notice something, a little something is going by and it's creating a bit of a mood. You interrupt it and just go, wait a minute, shake out of that, snap out of it. You know, what's actually occurring right now? Where can I allow my awareness to just freely float? You know, last Friday night, I think it was, I was at another friend's house for dinner, and he was saying that his practice now, he's in his 70s, and he's had a stroke, And he was saying that his practice now is not just awareness, present awareness, but it's generating a loving awareness. And he says that he's just applying it to everything and everyone that comes in his field of of noticing. And he said, for example, I love that wall. (laughs) And I loved the whole notion that you're not only interrupting your old tragic story, but you're actually generating a, a warmth for your circumstance and for the moment you're in, that you're generating a, an appreciation and a warmth. And that will really speed up this habit of, of, of cruising along 
in just beingness that's very light and very free and very uh, appreciative. And that allows you to really like you, like being you. And therefore you feel comfortable with you. What I wanted to say was after you just said that, it's like the total opposite of being in therapy where you just dwell I know. on your past. And, I know. Uh, and, never, and it doesn't allow you to let it go. It just makes yeah. it a bigger focus. I know. And you know what's interesting about that, and by the way, I'm not against therapy, and I think it has its use. But what is very interesting, what they're discovering in neuroscience, is there's a saying now in, in neuroscience, the neurons that fire together wire together. If you keep practicing certain thought patterns, you're actually entraining deeper neurological patterning along those same patterns so that it'll kick up that material more frequently. Exactly. Move the the attention so that you're in neural patterning that is much more beautiful. And if you're going to just keep going over angry thoughts, and, and my teacher intuited this without knowing the neuroscience, he would talk about digging in the garbage heap of the past. And he'd, he'd, he'd do these, these images of like picking up a piece of garbage and going, oh, oh, here's some more. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, a lot of people are doing that in therapy for years and decades. They're just digging in, trying to find, I don't know what, jewels in the, in the garbage heap. But what it's doing in the brain, we now know, is intensifying the neural patterning. So, not recommended. (laughs) Um, And it's not to say, I think some people are benefited, especially short-term, in therapy. What you have to then find, though, is a very honest therapist who's willing to let you go. Mm and make their own job redundant. And that's hard to find because they're dependent on your continuation. So, you know, you have to be your own advocate in a circumstance like that and not just let the therapist tell you when you're done. So when I have more repetitious, worrisome thoughts, it's the first thing in the morning. So I've awakened if you will, uh, with those. And so what would be the way to interrupt those? Where they're repetitious, they're familiar, they're not... Sometimes you can be very proactive in the interrupting by forcefully putting your attention on something that is compelling. Okay. If you can't just simply interrupt it and say, okay, let me just focus on breathing or I'm brushing my teeth or whatever then give yourself something that is so kind of pleasant for you as an experience. Mm -hmm. Whatever that is for you, I don't know what it is. Whether it's to go look at your flowers in a garden or go feed the birds or whatever it is that actually demands a higher level of your attention that is combined with pleasure. Yeah. Because that will be easier to... Then just... Interrupt it. And by the way, this applies not just to the morning, for all of us. If you're finding yourself lost in gloomy thoughts and you're finding it's a little hard to just interrupt it into present awareness, then do something, bump up the level of pleasure and interrupt it that way. Okay. Fair enough. You don't have to be heroic. And it's the interrupting that interrupts the neural patterning. Such that when you you get habituated in this, when you get a a habit going and it's rolling along, then it's much easier. It's much, much easier. You're flowing along in present awareness. And then it's just occasionally that your mind is drifting off into the mad material. Mm -hmm. Good. Thank you. So whatever you can do along the way to instigate more frequent interruptions until it's not even a sense of of you having to interrupt 
the mind's flow because the mind is actually flowing in present awareness. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I don't know exactly even how to form this into a question, so we'll just go with it. For a while now, it has been uncomfortable adding any label to myself, any type of promotion about myself, anything like that. And yet, I'm in a situation now that I need to look for a job. I'm doing the resume. I'm doing all of that. And doing the resume doesn't feel authentic. It doesn't feel exactly true. It doesn't feel right. And yet, uh, you know, I, the, I, I'm the, looking the for facts, how to the balance. The facts of the resume are true, right? Yes. Okay. So you can have a very light relationship to this kind of self-promotion, really, mm-hmm. which is what a lot of people who are working independently have to do, you know? Mm-hmm. You have to kind of let somebody know that you have these skills And you can have a very kind of casual relationship to Mm -hmm. those skills and to the whole presentation, in fact. If it's someone, if it's in an environment where the people know me already, it's not a problem, but I'm putting myself out. And in the past, that would not have bothered me. But for some reason, I'm not feeling comfortable in that. And I understand that's just a new... um, aspect of becoming more comfortable with myself and more comfortable with the presentation of my authentic self instead of having to label myself to be something to be accepted. And yet, monetary things require that I do that. So I'm hearing you say that that's fine to still do that. Just don't put much stock in it. Just know it's part of what I have to do at that moment. And yes, not wear that as your identity. Because right. it isn't. It, it isn't. It course. isn't, no. and I'm not comfortable with not, it. Being. You don't need to wear it as your identity. In fact, sit in your true identity very powerfully, and that will actually, that will transmit, right? Mm-hmm. That will transmit something very lovely. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people who are, Hiring, they don't even know that they're that they're being affected by this, but they're actually tuned into the vibe. <laughs> and so sometimes you have somebody who has a great resume in front of you, and for some reason or other, you just don't even know why. You're just not that compelled to hire this person. And then another person, my my stepmother just told me this story. As a matter of fact, she just hired someone this past week. Another woman had come in and applied for the job who was way more skilled, way more qualified. And she chose the woman who was less qualified, had less experience, was younger. It was all on the vibe entirely. So to really know that as you sit in this radiance, right, and if you have an acceptable resume there, you're not that attached to this resume. I once went for a job interview. It was many, many years ago, and it was a job I really wanted to get. And the guy who was going to hire me, it was his company and his foundation, he didn't even look at my resume. He, he just talked to me. He didn't even look at the, what I brought him, and he, hadn't, he didn't have any pre-screening of anything. Um, but he just barely glanced. He just saw that I brought one. You <laughs> have one for the files. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> and know also that if you can sit in your authenticity, truly sit in it deeply and show that, right? If they don't respond to you in your authenticity, then you don't want that job. No, I don't. And I always say that to people about dating as well. I always say, don't bother trying to impress them on the first date. <laughs> Be yourself. <laughs> Save a lot of time. <laughs> I mean, obviously, one would dress nicely and all of those things, but just try to be as natural and normal and authentic as possible. 
And this is always applying. Well, that's true. That's that's always true. I think part of the challenge too is nothing has stirred my heart uh, that it's the thing I want to do right now. And I think that that's where I don't feel a real connection with a lot of energy making this next step. I feel good that I've done it and that I'm open to it. But you know how when something catches your glimmer, whether it's grand or very simple, it's beside the point. If it makes your heart sing, that's something. I haven't touched into that yet, and and that makes it more uh, challenging. Yes, I know that does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you faced that. But it was a blessing. Yeah. Well, thank you. So I hear you saying just simply release it, be in the present, and enjoy the journey. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's great to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I feel very comfortable uh, in the middle of people, just half sleeping, happy faces, you know, just like myself. <laughs> Somehow, you know, I feel comfortable. Comes with uh, some sleepiness. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, probably that's what you suggest to be, you know, relaxed and just easy yes, in life. Too. Well, my job is different. I'm a teacher professor in college I've been trained to be very critical yeah. and and that's the problem uh, of my job in a way meeting student I I try to love them I, I mean I love them yes. I, I thought yes. and but uh the more I love, uh, the more I want to engage in their life in a way, just as a coach or yeah. as a trainer or as a teacher. I happen to, I, I just start to realize that I'm constantly selecting them, evaluating them. Uh-huh. And, uh, and sometimes discard. I mean, just, uh, or sometimes some, hate. <laughs> <laughs> you mean some of them? Some of them. Some of just, them. Uh, you, you, mm-hmm. When you say selecting, some of them you you would prefer to be working with, right? Not or others. some who are not really well trained, or do not fit to certain job, or yes. I mean, being lazy. Or I I I used to be a very lazy student, but my professor had had different attitude to me. But somehow I could not really hold up to have that kind of permissive teachership, I ended up to be very critical. I mean, very, I don't know. That's the, that's the problem I have in these days. No. Do, you, do you see benefit in your students mm. if you're very critical? Do you, do you see that it pushes some students onward to do better and others it, it doesn't? Yeah, that's uh, for some students. That's very. I mean, uh, but what I what I'm concerned uh, more about is few students, a very few students who are really uh, touched and uh, who really wanted to be loved, yes, eagerly and yes. overly, and then they usually get very deep scars, you know, yeah. by having. Uh, teacher student relationship with me you know that's that's the, the some of the experience recent experience I have you know I have trouble of cope with my sense of teachership as trainer coach and uh, as someone who really push pushes them. push uh, yeah. demanding you know a certain yes. level or certain standard at the same time I just uh, cannot uh really uh, cope with my other image of favorable image of me to be permissive to be accepting to be yeah. uh, more but i think uh, you know like if you think about it like the string of an instrument for instance if the string is too loose it needs to be tightened right and if it is too tight it needs to be loosened up a little to get the perfect note from that string, isn't it? So I think that students are like that as well. Some are wound tight. 
and they need they need a little love they need a soft they need a gentle loosening of the string and some are you can sense this would be a really fantastic string if it was just tightened up a bit this would be a, this would make a beautiful sound and you can on those you can push them a little and you can make the experiment as you go push a little if you sense it's loose, but if you start to see the student is not responding well to this, then back off. And, you know, to be really f- free and flexible with yourself as though you're making an experiment. You know, you're seeing where's the boundary for this particular student. And know that it's, you're not going to be perfect. It's not, you're not going to be the perfect tuner of the instrument, but that with continuing at it, you might get the perfect tune. That's the thing. Just I made a couple mistakes <laughs> strengthening no and, and and in these days I'm I'm trying to backing backing myself up most of cases and then it's less exciting it makes me less exciting in teaching. So yes, that's another yes. puzzlement I have. But, but you know we we all make mistakes in our whatever our field, our chosen profession. We all make mistakes. Now, if you're feeling that it's just too getting to be too much, you know, you're just tired of it and you're ready to retire. <laughs> um, come to Maui. <laughs> yeah, you can come to Maui. <laughs> Leave that snow and soul that's happening right now. Everyone I know who, who is creative, who works, who, who does anything in life, parents or whatever, we all make mistakes. And... Maybe your, maybe your first line of criticism is, is to you, you know, that you're being probably a bit hard on you because perhaps your students would say you're a great teacher <laughs> or many of them might say that. That's a very sweet energy here. I came in and it kind of, it's like... I just want to fall asleep on the floor or something. You know, I, I mean, I always consider it somewhat, unlike many other circumstances one would be in, I'm almost um, happy when I see, or flattered or something, when I see people nodding off. <laughs> because I do sense people are exhausted, you know. So many people are exhausted. And when you come into a, a circumstance like this, and the mind is given permission to rest, often people would just go flat out. You know, usually they don't fall off their chairs, but often I'll see people right away, right at the start, they're kind of nodding. It's what I do when I get on an airplane. It's like the stress and the push and the whatever to get to the airport and get the thing, get through the security and get on the plane. And And often before we even take off, I'm kind of like woozy because finally everything gets to just relax. At our retreats, I encourage people, the very first thing I tell them is sleep as much as you want, sleep until you don't feel like sleeping. And it's amazing how many people will arrive at a retreat really bone tired, mentally weary and physically weary. And they don't even know how tired they are. And sometimes people will sleep for much of two days. <laughs> yeah, they manage to get to the meals usually, but <laughs> but um, a lot of times people will come and just sleep, sleep, sleep. I mean, it's the opposite of my my Buddhist teachers in the old days. They were always exhorting us to get up at 4 a.m. and try to sit as much and stay up late and da-da-da. And, you know, it would just be tightening the string tighter and tighter, winding it tighter, you know. So my sense is, you know, rest, sink, relax, float, sleep, until your own natural energy has brightened up. And it will once it's rested. And, and then... When you're acclimated to living in a very restful awareness, a very easy awareness, not straining to be aware, but just floating in awareness, that then continues and you, and you can have 
a lot of energy as a result, you know? There's kind of a consistent good energy, depending on your your system. Sometimes when we fall into quiet, some people in the room might have a sense that more questions need to be happening or or they're wondering if I'm uncomfortable with it, and I can assure you I'm not. <laughs> so just use those moments, those times, to just relax, just be, float, float along. We don't need to be entertained. This context that we're in is really to offer, like I said earlier, a frequency. So you walk in the room and you can feel it. You start entering the frequency. And it's a very quiet, a very focused, a very alert frequency. One of the aspects of offering this is so that you have a taste of what it feels like to just be hanging around in bright awareness. So you just get a, you start to get used to this. Oh, this is how this feels. This feels normal. The more you sit in this, the more normal it starts to feel to you. What then begins to feel abnormal is being lost in the stories, in the thoughts, in the mad old dramas of mind that feels less normal. This has been In the Deep. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and numerous other podcast platforms, as well as on our website, katherineingram.com, where you can also book a private session and see the schedule of upcoming events, such as the twice-monthly Sunday sessions starting in February 2023 on the Mornington Peninsula. We're very grateful for reviews on whichever platform you're listening and for donations to support the production of these podcasts. Till next time.